Recovery Elevator, episode 48. Like I was above all the whole recovery process. It wasn't a big deal for me that I could be able to, I would be able to control it and move forward. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. At the time of this recording, I have been sober for 16 months and one week. And let me tell you right now, it feels good. On today's podcast, I've got James. It's safe to say he is at the top of the game in his industry, and he's in the beverage industry, more specifically, the alcohol beverage industry. And James has been sober for eight days. Now, you might be thinking to yourself right now, eight days? Why is James being interviewed on this podcast? Why don't you go out there and interview somebody like Bradley Cooper or Russell Brand or a celebrity or somebody who's been sober for a long time? Well, I'm not discounting their stories. I'm not saying they don't merit to be on my podcast. But personally, selfishly, I want to hear from guys like James, who is willing to go on a podcast and create accountability, who has only eight days of sobriety. This guy is serious, and he's got a lot of great things to say. The topic for today's podcast is the mirror test. What do you personally see when you look at yourself in the mirror? No, seriously, ask yourself again, what do you really see? Look in that mirror, pull your eyelids down, and take a good look. And truly listen to yourself. What do you actually see? I know what Gary, that's my addiction, I know what Gary has told me to see. But what do I really see? And no, the inspiration for this podcast topic did not come from the 1987 smash hit released by Michael Jackson called Man in the Mirror. But there is something about that song when I hear it. I am on the dance floor for a full five minutes and two seconds. I love that song because it's analogous for what I'm talking about today. I'm so grateful for that song. In fact, I'm grateful for Michael Jackson. In fact, I think the whole world is grateful for that song and Michael Jackson, minus the kids. In fact, the inspiration for this podcast topic came from a guy named Dale Wimbro, wrote a poem called The Guy in the Glass. Now I'm guessing the majority of you guys out there have already heard this poem. It's often referred to in athletics. In fact, that's where I heard it both times. The first time I heard it, I was a sophomore or maybe a junior in high school right in the middle of two days during fall football camp, and the coach at the end of the practice says, bring it up, guys, and he reads this poem, not off a piece of paper. He's got it memorized verbatim. At the end of that poem, I was like, yeah, I love that poem. Because at that time in my life, when I looked in the mirror, not only did I see somebody I recognized, I saw a friend. I saw my best friend. I heard that same poem read by a fellow football coach of mine in 2012. I was also coaching football for that same team. The reaction was a little different at the end of that poem for myself. My head was down because I had not a clue who that man in the mirror was. Not a clue. Not only did I not recognize the man in the mirror, what I saw disgusted me. In fact, I couldn't look at that man in the mirror. Even though that person in the mirror looking back at me desperately wanted me to look and have a verbal conversation. But it didn't happen for a long, long time. So here's the poem. The guy in the glass by Dale Wimbro, 1934. When you get what you want in your struggle for pelf and the world makes you king for a day, then go to the mirror and look at yourself and see what that guy has to say. For it isn't your father or mother or wife who judgment upon you must pass. The feller whose verdict counts most in life is the guy staring back from the glass. He's the feller to please, never mind all the rest, for he's with you clear up to the end. And you've passed your most dangerous, difficult test if the guy in the glass is your friend. You may be like Jack Horner and Chisel a Plum and think you're a wonderful guy, but the man in the glass says you're only a bum if you can't look him straight in the eye. 
You can fool the whole world down the pathway of years and get pats on the back as you pass, but your final reward will be heartaches and tears if you've cheated the guy in the glass. Thank you, Dale Winbro, for that solid piece of prose. You can see this poem on the recoveryelevator.com website, podcast episode 48. It's in the show notes. And let me tell you how disgusted I was with the man in the mirror for nearly a decade. After attempting the geographical cure of leaving Spain after I left the bar and moving back home to Colorado, I thought my drinking was not going to board the airplane with me, but guess what it did. So part of 2007, all of 2008, and part of 2009, I was living at home, back in Colorado with my parents. And I remember taking showers before I would get out. I would purposely turn the hot water on high, let the entire bathroom steam up for like three to four minutes. Sorry, mom and dad, for the water and heat bill. Just so, when I got out of the shower, the entire mirror was fogged up. Therefore, that solved a problem. I wouldn't have to avoid looking into the mirror or an awkward gaze into the mirror. The entire mirror was completely covered in steam. So exemplary behavior by an alcoholic, we solve one problem, which was me gazing into the mirror, and then create more problems. An obvious one would be a hike in the energy and water bill for my parents. My bad, mom and dad. Another salient moment in my journey to sobriety where I realized I could not look at myself in the mirror was at my grandpa's funeral in 2009. After everybody had left the funeral, I went back by myself into the room that housed the coffin. Right in front of the coffin, there was a photo in a frame of my grandpa standing in front of a monster tank during World War II. And my grandpa, he was a total stud. For Christmas one year, instead of the customary $25 check, he and his wife, my grandma, wrote us memoirs. To sum up, that 32-page document was, he just kicked a lot of ass in life and did a lot of great things. For example, that's how we met my grandma. She was French. The unit that he was in liberated a town in France. He met my grandma and said, if I make it through this war alive, I'm going to come back and marry you. Sure as shit, five countries later, two years later, guess who he married? My grandma. But here I am in already a vulnerable moment. I looked into my grandpa's eyes in that frame. He was staring back at me. Looked like he had gunpowder or maybe dirt on his cheek. I don't know. And it just hit me. I said, Grandpa, I'm a total sack of shit. And then I got pissed at my grandpa for dying. I was like, hey, Grandpa, couldn't you just stick around for one more month and you could have given me all the life secrets of how to kick so much ass like you did in life? Well, I can guarantee you, if he did live for a month longer, I wouldn't have asked him. That was a very powerful moment in my journey to sobriety. I was halfway hungover. I'm sure I reeked of booze. And it was the first time in my life, looking back, that I honestly said to myself, the problem might be alcohol. And four months later, I quit drinking for 2.5 years. I was a dry drunk for 2.5 years, learned a lot of valuable lessons then, but it got the ball rolling. And thank you, Grandpa, for being such a badass. So do yourself a favor. It's not going to be easy. Look yourself in the mirror and get real with yourself. Get honest with yourself. Get R-E, redo, get real with yourself. Ask yourself, what are you struggling with? And what's the real thing holding you back? And let me relieve some struggles for yourself because you don't need to ask the question to the man in the mirror, how can I better control my drinking? Just throw that question right out the window. In fact, I want to hear from you guys. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Do you pass that test? Do you see a friend? Do you see your best friend? Do you see somebody like myself five years ago, or even in 2014, that you despised? You didn't know how that person got there because you sure as hell didn't recognize that person. 
you're like, that's not me. For number one, my face is fat. Thank you, beer. An amazing thing happened when I was back in Colorado. I was there for a week talking to five different schools about alcohol, addiction, and real issues that kids face every day. And I was told there was a group of seventh grade girls that had joined this group because they wanted to have real conversations. So I said, okay, I'm going to ask you guys a question right now. We're going to go counterclockwise. That backfired because they had no idea what that meant. I said, tell me what you're struggling with and be honest. Be real with yourself. If you're not going to be real and give an honest answer, that's totally fine. Just say pass. And I pointed to a girl and the first thing that she said was depression. I was like, whoa, did not see that one coming, but we are already on the right path. After we went clockwise and I'm like, you know what? Screw the counterclockwise part. We're going clockwise. A couple more tremendous answers came out. There were only a couple passes. And when we got back around the circle to the person who started, she went again. And then the next person went. I was like, whoa, whoa, we're only going to do one round here. But they requested a second round. And guess what happened when the third time went? They kept going. And then this girl said something that I resonated with. Because when I look in the mirror right now, this is something that I struggle with. She said, I struggle with being the person that I want to be. I looked at this seventh grade girl, pointed at her and was like, bingo, you and I got to talk, sister. Because that's what I'm struggling with right now. I can say all these brilliant things on a podcast. Read poems. Make myself look pretty damn cool and favorable to the eyes and ears of my listeners. But as soon as I press stop and I look myself in the mirror, can I be the guy, the man that I really want to be? And that's what I'm struggling with right now, is walking that walk that I talk. Nobody's perfect, but I'm terrified that I can't be the man that I want so badly to be in that mirror. All right, before we get to our interviewee, James, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. James, how are you? Hey, I'm great, Paul. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us, James. You know what? Let's get right into this, James. How long have you been sober? I've been sober eight days. Eight days. Congratulations. That's one more day than a week. How do you feel? I feel great. I feel great. I've been, you know, like most people, it's not like this is the first eight days. It's been kind of a roller coaster up and down since, you know, since February of last year. But yeah, this time around, I, I feel great. Absolutely. And I want to hear all about your story. But first, let's just hear a little bit about yourself. If you could give listeners some background about yourself, for example, where you're from, what you do for a living, how old you are, are you married, do you have a family, and maybe list some hobbies. Yeah, no problem. So I was, I was born and raised in New Jersey, spent some time in the military, uh, lived in Virginia, moved back home, went to school for, for accounting at Rutgers, and I moved out here to Northern California back in 1995. So I've been out here for about 20, 21 years. I'm currently I'm married. I've been married for um, 16 years. And I work for a, a large alcohol beverage distribution company. I'm the controller of the organization, which basically means that I'm in charge of uh, finance, accounting, and payroll. I handle the books for the state of California and the PAC Northwest, which the PAC Northwest for me means Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Alaska. So you work for an alcohol beverage wholesaler. Did I hear that correctly? 
Yes, I've been working. I've been working for my company for twenty years now. Twenty years. To me, that sounds like you are in the lion's den every day. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, it it it, it sounds more uh, interesting than it really is. You know, like I always tell people, I'm a trained accountant, so I could be selling shoes or I could be selling booze, and my job really is not going to change from from you know one aspect to another. I work my way up in the organization. The position that I'm in now as a controller is not the position I started with. I, I first started as a financial analyst. I became a senior analyst, a supervisor. I became an accounting manager, and then I became the controller back in July of the year 2000. Well, James, we have something in common because I am also a controller, not of a large corporation and payroll and finances, but I have been trying to control my booze intake for a long time and only successfully for about 16 months now. Can you touch on that a little bit? Have you tried to control your drinking habits? Any Have you ever put any plans into place, no drinks before 5 p.m. like that? I have, yeah. It seems like the, the different things that I've tried to do over the past year, I've had some successes and some failures. I, you know, it first started, you know, after I got a DUI, I basically decided that I was going to not drink during the week and then just only drink on the weekends. And it seemed like that lasted maybe first two weeks. And then I just kind of gave in to the pressure with kind of hanging out with my friends and other colleagues. Sure. You mentioned the DUI thing, and it sounds like the fear of the DUI, like, oh, my God, I just got a DUI. The fear and the shame got you sober for roughly two weeks. And I'm going to throw this out there as well. In July of 2014, I also got a DUI. I got a DUI driving to work and fear and the shame and the guilt of getting a DUI at age 32, I think it was 31, 32, whatever, July 2014, that fear and guilt got me sober for two weeks. Two weeks later, I was driving uphill with a broken taillight drunk, and my plan was if a cop was behind me, I would simply pull off the side of the road and let gravity stop me. I mean, how insane is that? And so tell me about that. Two weeks after you got your first DUI, you were drinking, right? Yeah, I was. I've always considered myself an alcohol abuser, but not necessarily an alcoholic. Mm. I always figured, you know, I just figured, you know, I, I could go out and have a nice time with people, hold my liquor, get home. If I wanted to consume more, I would do that, or I would just basically fall fall asleep. But, I, yeah, I think the, the impetus for me to want to uh, transform myself, make a change in my life, really acknowledge what was going on between me and my relationship with alcohol it really it, it culminated when I got my DUI. I got my DUI back in January of 2015. It was January 25th, actually. Mm-hmm. And I was on my way back. I have a cabin up in uh, basically in the Sierras in California. And I was, I was driving back to spend the night with my, my nephew and my niece. And after having played golf, I had been drinking. I had some Benadryl in my system. I was very tired. And essentially, I kind of dozed off and fell asleep at the wheel Unfortunately, I wasn't going very fast, but I ended up in this gully, and I got out of the car. You know, the airbag didn't deploy or anything like that. I got out of the car. I was fine. I wasn't banged up or anything, and I was trying to get a hold of my nephew to come pick me up, and there was someone that was there that actually saw what happened, and I, I guess they wanted to be a good Samaritan, and they called uh, They called for an ambulance, and uh, there's no ambulance up in that area. It's very remote, so a fire truck came. And then shortly thereafter, uh, <laughs> there was a CHP, California Highway Patrol, car that came. And, of course, they started to question me and ask me if I was drinking and, you know, went through the whole sobriety checkpoint. 
and they do the field sobriety test, and you know, I I blew a very high alcohol level. What was that level, James? Uh, it was point three zero one. Point three zero one, not bad. You know, that's a good job on that. And I, I'm not saying good job, but like we have a tolerance that is so high as alcoholics. When I got my DUI, it was a point one six, and with, you know, it's yeah. double the legal limit. You're like pushing the triple the legal limit. But a normal person with a point three zero one, they're not going to get a DUI. A normal drinker because they can't line the key up to the ignition. They're so drunk. Am I? You know what I'm saying on that? But our tolerance is so high that not only can we match the key and the ignition, turn it, we can we can drive the car. And it doesn't sound like you were so drunk you drove off the road. It sounds like you fell asleep because you had Benadryl in your system. Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I mean, I, I, I like to play golf. I'm no good at it, but I do love to play golf. <laughs> and so I was with my nephew and his friend, and, and we had a great round. And I was taking off to go home. And, and of course, you know, I had to pull over into the local pub and have a couple more for the road, as they say. And when I got back in the vehicle before I hit the main highway, I realized that I really, I truly was very drowsy. And in the right heart, I really was attempting to turn around and go back to the house to spend the night instead of getting on the road and, and um, taking the risk. Now, that's not to say, I mean, I have to say for, for the listeners here, the thousands of times that I actually drove under mm-hmm. the influence of alcohol knowingly. And, and you get to that point where there's a, there's such a level of arrogance that you get. Not that you think, you know, hey, I'm a good driver being drunk, but you feel like you you obtain a certain level of skills to be able to drive. And, uh, you, you know, you're not going to cause like a distraction or a disruption where somebody's going to pull you over. You just try to get in the middle of the road and the middle of the pack and make your way through to get back home or your final destination. Sure. <laughs> That's, that sounds like a plan or a skill to get in the middle of the pack. When I up here in Montana and in in Colorado, when I was drinking and driving, if it was a blizzard, that was go time for me because there are no lines on the road to stay in, right? They're all covered with snow. So the whole road is free game. There's no police officer going to pull you over for swerving if there's no lines to swerve over. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah. And and referencing the podcast title, James, we've talked about January 2015. You said your bottom was around February 2015. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I it, it really was it really was a time in my life where I had to really sit back and take stock in what my life had become in terms of my my alcohol consumption. Working in the alcohol beverage industry does, you know, afford you many many opportunities to go out to dinners and events and functions and trips where alcohol is served freely and regularly at no cost basically to to me and to my family. And, and that's not to say that there are not many, many individuals in my company and in my industry that do not, that basically they drink responsibly. I would say that I'm, I'm one of the outliers. There's a lot of standards. There's a lot of expectations with people in our company and especially at my level in the organization that you would not put yourself and subject yourself to alcohol abuse and, and, and getting yourself into trouble. And I'm one of those people, I think that over time, I really didn't know when to call it quits. I, I never thought that I was drunk, but then people would often tell me, hey, man, you were totally hammered last night. You know, you should see the stuff that you were saying. And hey, you know, you sent all these crazy emails out and I uh, hope you don't get in trouble or anything like that, which, mm. which I never did. But I did get spoken to on a number of occasions. James, I had dinner with a friend of mine who was in the distributing industry up here in Montana. 
And I talked to him about that, that I told him straight up, I don't drink because I'm an alcoholic, I'm in recovery. And we talked about the industry in general and correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of those people, they get weeded out pretty quick. You can't be a delivery driver if you're drinking the stock. Am I right? Or majority of people are just normal drinkers, right? I would say most of the people that I work with are, are normal drinkers, social drinkers. They know their limitations. They know you know, the basic rules that if you're going to have more than two drinks, it's not something you want to get behind the wheel and take a chance. Right now, there's so many opportunities for people to get taxis, to get Uber, to have a designated driver, to do things responsibly and to be smart about it. And, you know, unfortunately for me, I let things culminate to the point where I did get in trouble and I did report it to my organization. So there are procedures, there's protocols that we follow. And I was fortunate enough that there was not any serious ramifications to, to me and my, you know, my employment with my company. Sure. And talk to me about the culture in general with the stigma surrounding alcoholism. Is it, hey, guys, I got a DUI. Are they like, or hey, guys, I'm an alcoholic. Or is their response, well, you're a weak person. Get the hell out of here. You're fired. Or is the culture more of something like, okay, let's get you help. This is a disease. Yeah, so there, there's really two parts of it. If in my personal life, I'm experience, experiencing issues with drinking and I get to the point where I feel like I need to go into a detox program or if I just feel like I'm, I'm out of control, I haven't gotten in trouble, no one's really noticed any unusual behavior or demeanor about my person and you report it. The, the company is very, very responsive. They're going to send you to a place. It's going to be a no cost to you or to your family. They want to see you get better. They don't want that image out there uh, tarnishing um, our company or the industry that we're not responsible people, even though there's alcohol around. Sure. And people just have to have that limit. If on the other hand, however, if I was at a company function and let's just say I got into a fist fight with somebody, or I got into a screaming match, or I humiliated somebody, or it was embarrassing, or belligerent, or falling down, sloppy, drunk. Chances are, yeah, you're going to get disciplined up and up to and including termination. Yeah, it's a pretty good explanation of that. That made, makes a lot of sense. And James, talk to me about your drinking habits kind of before the DUI, and talk to me about after the DUI, up till about eight days ago. Did you were you, were you like 10 drinks a night? Were you just a weekend drinker? How much did you drink? Yeah, I can probably go back to my early, my early thoughts of drinking because I have, I have, there's five kids in the family. I got two older brothers and two older sisters. And my father, he was a heavy drinker. And I seem to recall even at the age of like 12, 13 years old where my brothers, we would go downstairs. My father had a bar and he had all those liquor bottles. And so we would just, you know, my brothers would be like, here, try this out. So we would take like a swig off of something. They pour like a little bit of water to kind of bring the level back up to where it was. So it wasn't noticeable, shaking the bottles. And, you know, even those earlier days, and then even kind of like when you get into junior high and high school, you always had my older brother's friends or my brother that would be able to go out and get us like some bud nips, something small. It was always a matter of drinking for the purpose of getting drunk. It was never like you just drink to get a buzz and have a nice time. The purpose of drinking was always to get drunk. Mm -hmm. And then when I went to the military, it was the same thing. All the people that I hung out with when I was in the Navy, we would always go to the bars. Purpose was to get drunk, whether we were in clubs, whether we were in bars, any place we would go overseas or even at the, uh, the naval port. It was always the pattern. And so anyway, to get to fast forward to where I was more recently, 
Uh, I would probably say that I was drinking at least five or six cocktails per night. It wasn't like I had this big tumbler and I just would chug it. But yeah. over the course of an evening, I would have like a couple drinks, a couple glasses of wine, after dinner drink, and then probably just kept going until I went to bed or passed out. Gotcha. Now, eight days ago, would, did something happen or were you just sick and tired of being sick and tired? Well, I mean, I, I'd have to say that after I got the DUI and I started going to recovery program, that's, that's really when I tried to start sobering up. And I did have periods of time, periods of sobriety where I think the longest I technically went was probably about 120 days, maybe 150 days where I didn't drink. Oh, wow. And then I just got to the point where I was with friends and it was like, you know, hey, maybe if I just have one or two, it's not going to be a big deal. And then, of course, once you have that one or two, it just leads to three or four or five. I mean, a lot of times, quite frankly, I would be out with, you know, the individuals that I work for, our general managers and different people, both here in California and up in the Pacific Northwest. And the way that I would always hide it is I would go out and have a nice time. I'd have my couple of drinks. I'd drink my drink and everything would be fine. I'd have a nice conversation with everybody, talk to them. And then after we left, the first thing I did was go back to my room, wait like a half hour, and then I would scamper out, go to the first bar or lounge or whatever was nearby in the hotel and just kind of hang out there until I was just like completely snockered. And that was what I did for, you know, even even during the period of time when I was trying to be in my recovery, I, I would just get in those modes where I just wanted to drink. I don't know why I just kind of had that feeling like I was entitled to, like I was above all the whole recovery process. It wasn't a big deal for me that I could be able to, I would be able to control it and move forward and not get stuck in a mode where I felt like I couldn't stop. The whole, you said earlier in the Navy and growing up, all your friends, the goal was to just get drunk. And I understand hundred percent what you're talking about, but the difference was with the tolerance, kind of the point three zero one level of your DUI. My friends, right. we were exactly the same in college and in my 20s. The difference was they'd have five beers or six or seven and just times it by three. I'd, I'd have 15 or 21 to 30 drinks. And what you said right there is we'd go out to the bars, um, you know, have a responsible amount of drinks, two, three drinks, go home, and I'd keep drinking. And that, that yeah. is a battle that I lost 99 out of 100 times. I think the only time I won, there was no alcohol there. So the choice was made for me. But I couldn't stop drinking after I started. Is that something you can relate with, James? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and even, you know, go back to your, your original question, which was, you know, what happened eight days ago? You know, I was already in a period of, I think I was up to like maybe th this last go around, I was up to maybe like 28 days without drinking, right? So I was with my wife. Um, we went to a couple towns over, kind of a fancier restaurant. I had no intention on drinking. I was just going to have iced tea or Coke or something. And my wife, she's not a big drinker. And so we sat down and I looked around me and I saw all of the other couples. And like I said, it was a nice place. Everybody was having a drink, cocktail, having some wine. And I just said to myself, like this, this level of arrogance kind of rose in me. Like, I want to be like them. I just want to kind of be hanging out here, have my drink and then have the dinner and go home. And when the waiter came over, he said, can I get you something to drink? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'd like to have a Belvedere martini up uh, with two, uh, two olives. And my wife looked at me and she was mortified. She was like, what are you doing? You got all these days and now you're going to go drink. And I'm like, you know what? It's just something I want to do. It's no big deal. And she shook her head. So the guy brought the drink over 
and I drank the thing fairly quickly. He came back around. I asked him for another one, and I was feeling pretty good. Um, they had some appetizers that they brought. I got it like three-quarters of the way through the drink, and then I realized that I, I really – now, at this point, I wanted to have some wine with my pasta because we went to, like, an Italian place. Sure, of and course. So, That's the classy thing to do. <laughs> yeah. My, 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 so my game plan was I'll just give my wife, like, the last little bit of the drink – this way, it, like, it gave me an opportunity, like a little window to be able to order the wine. And so I did. And then I had two glasses of wine. And so as soon as we got done, I couldn't wait to get in the car because I knew I had more wine at home because it's the holiday season and I had got wine from different suppliers. And so sure enough, went home, drank a whole other bottle of wine. Probably I probably drank even another half on top of that. I don't even remember because as soon as I started, I just could not stop. That's really what has been happening to me, and I realize I truly do have a problem, that I am an alcoholic. And it's not like I'm a bad person or I'm dumb or stupid or foolish. I'm very well-educated, uh, very successful in what I do. I have a great family, but I just have been making bad choices, very bad judgments. James, I have interviewed 52 people now. This is this is going to be for episode 49, I believe. And I've heard the same story 52 times, right? You just plug in a couple yeah. differences and I am guilty. My, my story is the exact same where how it started at that dinner. My addiction, I've even personified it. His name is Gary. Gary got in my head. It sounds like with you even say, you know what, Paul, it is if I'm in this restaurant with you right now, I'd say Gary would be like, you know what, Paul? We're in a nice Italian restaurant. That person over there in, in their nice jacket and their wife, they're having a glass of wine. We should be able to do this because we're classy. In my mind, I already heard you said it. You said, my game plan. There was only a window of time I could do this. And now, you know, you create a plan in your head. You have one Belvedere up, a classy drink, and then how the night end? It was a bottle and a half, and yep. you, you couldn't stop until you passed out, it sounded like. And that was eight days ago, am I right? Right. That's correct. Okay, and I just heard you say that I'm an alcoholic. When you got the DUI in January 2015, did those words come right. out of your mouth then? No. <laughs> it, it, took a, it took a while for me to really chew on that, to be able to say to myself, what is an alcoholic? I mean, you know, that's the thing. It's a very harsh term. It has a very negative connotation to it. And, you know, just, just to go back a little bit of time, not long ago, just a few years ago, I was hanging out with my brothers, and they like to drink. I drink way more than they drink, but they all they, they also drink. And we would joke around. Like, we, you know, back in New Jersey, it's not like here in California. If you go to California, you can bring a bottle of wine to a restaurant, mm -hmm. and they're going to charge you a corkage fee. Back in New Jersey, they have what this, what's called, you know, BYO. It's a bring your own. You bring your own bottle. And you can bring, you can bring beer. You can bring wine. I, I'm not sure if you can bring liquor per se, but you, you can bring your own stuff and they don't charge a corkage. You know, for me, watching them in action, you know, goofing around, it, it just, it, it, we would even joke around. Like my, my wife would be like, you know, why do you, everywhere you go, you have to be drinking. Everywhere you go, there has to be some kind of alcohol beverage like insight or else it's a no-go with the, with the event. It doesn't matter what the situation is. If you're going to go play golf, there's always alcohol. You're bringing minis. Or if you're going to go and, you know, play softball, there's always like a case of beer. <laughs> if you're going to go wine tasting, of course, there's always beverages that are available. And then you go out to dinner afterwards and then you're having cocktails and you're having more wine. I mean, it, it, it's terrible. I mean, the worst time I've ever had personally, 
my personal worst experience with drinking was maybe six years ago when my brother and I back in New Jersey, it was the day before uh, his son, my nephew, was getting married, and I got into a complete brawl, a total fist fight with my oldest brother. And he's seven years older than me. He used to box in Golden Gloves back in Elizabeth. And here I am, a grown man. Here's a grown man. I was in my mid-40s. He was in his early 50s. And we're having a fist fight. I mean, <laughs> throw down, punching each other in the face, kicking each other. You know, bones were fractured. My face was completely swollen. My na- nose was broken. My eyes were black and blue. My brother's not nearly the same, but he was... He didn't, he didn't escape unscathed. It was so disastrous that I did not even go to the wedding. I had to make up a story that there was some kind of lawsuit with my company that got, you know, I was getting summons and pulled away. And so my wife and I packed up our bags. We got back to Newark Airport and flew back to San Francisco. There was just no way that I was going to face my family looking like I did in the shape that I was. And it was all because of drinking. It was just stupidity. And the conversations and the arguments that come up with family members, whether you're talking about religion or for us, it was politics, of course. And to see what happened is a complete outrage. And and I can promise you to this day, there is no one else in my family except for my wife, uh, my brother and his uh, fiance and myself that knows what happened. I never even sat down with my nephew to explain to him what transpired the day before his wedding. Oh, wow. Wow. And James, I got to give you props right now. You've been sober for eight days. I often get emails from people who would like to share their story or I hear a story and I email them back. I'm like, gosh, would you be willing to do an interview with Recovery Elevator? And a common response I get is, yes, I would. But let me get one month. Let me get six months of sobriety under my belt. James, you got eight days of sobriety. And personally, if I had eight days, I would have said, well, what what can I share with somebody? How can I help somebody? James, like I said, I got to give you props because you're holding yourself accountable. This podcast interview you're doing right now is creating accountability. You're giving inspiration and hope to other people who are like, wait a second, this guy's got eight days and, and he's doing it. And again, like I said, I've interviewed 52 people and your story is you're on the right track. You're, you're going to get this. It's just a matter of time. And so, I mean, kudos to you, James. I, I really appreciate you sharing your story. And, and where are we at right now today? Like, how, how have you gotten eight days? Let's just hear about that. I'm, I'm interested. And it's not a short amount of time. I don't want to downplay that. Eight days is right. huge. So how have you gotten here? Yeah, well, I've had periods of, of much longer periods of time of sobriety. And in part, I was attending LifeRing meetings, which is a self-help recovery program. It's similar to AA. It's not exactly the same. AA has, I, I also go to AA. I go to both. And, um, you know, LifeRing program, it's about sobriety, self-help, and secularity. So they welcome all religions or none. There's less traditions. Like when I go to the AA uh, program, there's a, uh, there's a hall, the uh, fellowship hall, that's maybe like, I don't know, six minutes from my house. I usually go from Tuesday through Thursday, and then I also go on Saturday and Sunday, and I go to Life Ring on Monday and Monday and Friday. And I like both programs. They're, they each have something interesting uh, and unique about them. And I, I think it's being 
with fellow individuals that are also seeking sobriety. And there's lots of, there's all kinds of lengths of time. There's some people that I know that I'm very good friends with. They pretty much started when I did. And some of them have fallen down and gotten up and fallen down and gotten up just like me. There's other individuals that have been sober for many, many years. I mean, up to like eight years in life ring. You know, many of them came from different recovery programs. Many of them came from AA. Hmm. They were just looking for something different. The people that I know in AA, they've been around longer. There's lots of individuals that have peers of sobriety that run anywhere from like, you know, 17 to 30 years. And to me, it's pretty incredible because they all say the same thing. They all tell the story and lots of them have uh, both drug and alcohol conditions. And uh, some of them come from a criminal background. Other people were just, just had more of a traditional working life, but they they just all seem to have the same problem that I have, which is once they start drinking, they can't stop. Indeed, I am. I, and I can tell you right now, James, if I start drinking, I won't be able to stop. And like you said, I, they get down and they get back up again. That was my story oodles of times. And I would try and tell myself, or Gary would tell myself, Paul, it's going to be different this time. We've been sober for two months. We've been sober for 2.5 years. We're going to be able to have one drink and just stop. And that has never been the case. And fortunately, right now, I have no desire to test that theory again because Gary, (laughs) damn it, Gary, I know what your voice sounds like and I'm not going to listen to you. And James, there's one other thing you said earlier, actually a lot of things, but one thing in specific I want to point on. James, you are a controller of your company, right? You have millions or billions or who knows how much money coming through your hands, through your company. Obviously, you are trusted. You said it before. You are educated. You are smart. You are doing very big things in your industry. And listeners, if you're getting down on yourself, if you're self-loathing saying, I'm a loser, I'm not smart, I am unintelligent, I am weak because I cannot stop drinking, that is so far from the truth. Right, James? Oh, absolutely. I mean, oftentimes when I when I first went in, okay, when I when I had the DUI, my company sent me over to Kaiser, and lots of people probably are listening know what Kaiser is. It's it's like a Blue Cross Blue Shield, but it's it's HMO, and it's it's local out here in California. And when I sat down with the the psychiatrist, you know, he asked me. He kind of went through the normal things you would think of when you sit down with a psychiatrist. You know, you know, tell me about your drinking. You know, how much do you drink? You know, do you think you have a problem? No. Do you know what do you know what it means to be an alcoholic, you know? And and I always had that like vision of the degenerate guy falling down in the back alley with you know, a bottle <laughs> that, that would be in her hand. Yeah. You know, you, you you just don't picture people walking around in suits and ties and you know, they have this alcohol problem. Yeah, they might go out and have a few too many drinks and yeah, maybe they get behind the wheel when they're not supposed to, you know, but, but they look respectable, they look decent. Uh, They look like individuals that are contributors to society. But the funny thing is when this, when this doctor, you know, when he asked me, you know, what do you think it, what what does it mean to be an alcoholic? And I kind of, you know, mumbled whatever I said. And he said, well, let me, let me, let me ask you a few questions. And he asked like 20 questions and he said, don't answer the question right away. Individually. He goes, at the end, just tell me how many of these things do you think apply to you? And he probably ran off about 20 or 25 things. And when he was done, he goes, how many of those apply to you out of 25? And I was like, probably 23. <laughs> and, and, he, and he's like, you know, you're an alcoholic. And I'm like, uh, I just wasn't ready. I just wasn't ready to say it. You know, I didn't like the way he was going about it. You know, it just seemed like he was out to get me. Like he wanted to 
pin that label on me just so he felt good about himself at the end of the day and he can put the little check mark next to my name and hey there's James there's another alcoholic you know these guys just keep coming in here it's ridiculous you probably didn't and like his haircut either right yeah well, I mean he was fairly professional but <laughs> you know nobody wants to be put in that position where you know they're talking about you as if you have no control over your life like you're some moron that doesn't know what he's doing and I'm just thinking you know what I'm a successful guy I have a great wife. I've got a great family. I've got lots of friends. I've, I've been in my business for a long time. You know, yeah, I drink too much, but I didn't think, I didn't really think it was affecting me. But the, the truth of the matter is it really was affecting. It wasn't just affecting me. If my wife was sitting here on this podcast, oh, she would have plenty to say. Yeah. <laughs> I guarantee it. It's usually the case. James, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be great. Are you ready? I'm ready. Question number one, James, what was your worst memory from drinking? Yeah, worst memory, absolutely that fist fight with my oldest brother. Would he say he kicked your butt or would you say you won? No, he definitely won, no doubt, hands down. Yeah, I'm 0 and 374 against my older brother. Drunk or not, yeah. <laughs> Can't go down that road again. Number two, James, what's your plan in sobriety, building on these eight days moving forward? Yeah, I think I think the biggest thing for me is when the urges come up to the point where I want to pick up, I want to have that drink. It's really the rationale to say, what are you going to get out of it? Outside of a buzz that's going to last maybe 15 minutes without keep feeding it, What's the purpose? What's the end goal? And when I get past those feelings, uh, I feel good about myself, that I manage to put it aside and stay clean and feel good about myself. James, question number three. In terms of recovery, what is your favorite resource? Yeah, there's a number of resources that I have. You know, I, I, I'm fairly new to, to AA, so I am reading I am reading the big book. I'm reading the, the, the 12, 12 by 12. I think there's another uh, manual that they have. I also have, uh, you know, worksheets and books that come from Life Ring as well. Really looking at yourself and trying to decide, you know, that you really want to do this once and for all. Make the change in your life. Uh, be committed to it, and knowing that it's really something I have to own on my own. James, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? I think I think the best advice, Paul, that I've ever received is from a number of individuals that have told me not to give up. That if I slip up and fall down, to just put it behind myself and to just keep going forward. But essentially, that sobriety is not a destination, that it's a journey. It's something that has to be worked toward every day. Absolutely. And James, last question. Your time to give back. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in early recovery or, or thinking about quitting drinking? Yeah, I think uh, I would say that number one, you know, getting sober is something you have to do for yourself and for your life. Lots of people that I know that have abused alcohol for a long time, they have medical issues. I mean, they have serious uh, liver issues, heart issues, blood pressure issues, uh, issues with their skin, uh, issues with their breathing and with their respiratory system. But the big thing for me is not only taking care of yourself, but knowing that when you're when you're not sober, you're affecting other people. You're affecting your wife, your husband, your mom, your dad, your nephews, your nieces. I mean, you affect the dog for Christ's sakes. I mean, everything you do is not 
just affecting you, but it really, it truly is affecting other people. And people do worry about you. And when you just don't even like have enough gravitas to take care of yourself and to take care of your family, it really shows how selfish a person can be. Wow. And James, before we depart, give us your own personalized, you might be an alcoholic if, and this can be funny. It can be serious. It's your personalized, you might be an alcoholic if. I would say you're, you're basically an alcoholic if everything you do, every event that you go to, every dinner, every function, every trip, you have in the back of your mind a plan of where you're going to have drinks available. And if you know that there's going to be a long duration of time where there's nowhere to pull over and you have bottles tucked away, you've got a flask, maybe two of them, you always know that there's somewhere you're going to be able to sneak away and grab that drink to get your buzz on. Uh, I think that pretty much you're going to, you're basically telling yourself that you are an alcoholic. Hmm. And after hearing your story, I'm going to throw in my own personalized for you. You might be an alcoholic if you pick a fight with your older brother who used to be in golden gloves boxing. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to throw that one out there. So, uh, Hey James, thank you so much for helping me stay sober. I know it helped you and I know it's going to help a lot of listeners. Thank you so much, James. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate it. I appreciate being part of the group, and I I really do enjoy Recovery Elevator and all the posts. I like to see the videos, and I like the encouragement that I get from everyone. It seems like a great group. Hey, James, before we go, let's talk about accountability. We are thinking, not thinking, we are in the works of getting a date on the books for a Recovery Elevator meetup in San Francisco. Are you close to San Francisco? Yeah, I'm I'm about 20 minutes south of San Francisco and about 20 minutes north of San Jose, so very very close. I would be um, absolutely I would I would be there, no doubt. All right, we heard it here. I want to put a face to a name. I'm going to expand my recovery network, meet you in person. I cannot wait. James, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Paul. You might be an alcoholic if. Email us at info@recoveryelevator.com at your personalized you might be an alcoholic if. They can be funny, they can be serious, but most importantly, they got to be real. You might be an alcoholic if your spring cleaning means clearing out the old alcohol hiding spots, nooks, and crannies to make room for the new bottles coming in. You might be an alcoholic if you know more about what's happening in your bartender's life than in your best friend's life. That was from Sarge. This one's from Frank. You might be an alcoholic if the sun rises over the curb and you notice you have one shoe on and you're not sure if you lost a shoe or you found one. This next one's from Claudia. You might be an alcoholic if you do recycling at 2 a.m. in the morning so no one will see you. Love it. This one's from Kelly E. You might be an alcoholic if you don't remember leaving a bar with the guy. Wake up at 2 a.m. and find a note from a guy you swear you've never met. You text him and you confirm your worst fear. And then you immediately start drinking again. This next one's from Alvin. You might be an alcoholic if you can't wait to get home from the corner store to start drinking. So, on the way home from the corner store, you start drinking in your car. Thank you, Alvin. Recovery Elevator, we've got some great things happening in this community. Starting January 23rd in Bozeman, Montana, we're having our very first meetup. Expand your recovery network. We've also got another date on the books in Seattle on February 27th, and this just in, possibly March 5th in San Francisco. I'm hammering out the details right now. So here it is, Recovery Elevator. I'm throwing it out to the universe. I want to do this full time. If you've got a great venue, you can host myself. Let's have a meetup in your city. Let's do this. Email me at info at In the subject line, say meetup. And let's make this happen. 
because I fully believe whatever comes out those doors, we have a better chance of survival if we stick together. Therefore, expand your recovery network, your network of other like-minded individuals where we all have this communal disease called alcoholism. I cannot wait to put faces to names to a lot of the people that I've already been chatting to. And if you're not part of the Recovery Elevator private accountability group, email us at info.recoveryelevator.com. Request the link. We'll get you in that group. And this just in, speaking of accountability, I've been working on this for a while and it is hard. There will be a forum, a different platform, an accountability forum that will be launching on February 1st. And that's going to be at recoveryelevatorgroup.com. Recovery Elevator, you took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up. You can do this.